Welcome back to episode 68. This week, I'm going to take a slight tangent once again. This past week, there were headlines in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and others that were raised on the culture at the FDIC. Since part of my goal with the podcast is to share leadership approaches, here's a quick look at the situation. Fast-forwarding past NDU, I served at the FDIC, and we'll go more into that experience when we get to that part of my journey. By chance, the day after the article headlined in the Wall Street Journal, the FDIC chairman, Marty Gruenberg, was already scheduled to testify on the Hill and was grilled over the allegations posed in the article. So what's my perspective? Well, at the FDIC, I was the senior executive at the agency, notably the chief learning officer and director of corporate university, and I thought the timeliness of the headlines called for me to provide a perspective of where the organization was in the time period before that noted in the Wall Street Journal's investigation, and how leadership over time can both embed positive and negative impact that is difficult to shift. The investigation talked about several instances of sexual harassment, improper treatment of employees, and inappropriate, inappropriate partying at the FDIC-owned Student Residence Center in Arlington, Virginia. As a federal agency, that would already raise concern. Further, the FDIC is the backstop and serves as the insurance company for bank deposits, as you may recall from the financial crisis in the 2010s and the more recent headlines with Silicon Valley Bank in California. Your deposits in FDIC-insured banks are protected up to $250,000 per account, and when fashioned for families as account holders, that can increase by a substantial amount when you establish them wisely. For example, a husband's individual account is insured for $250,000, a wife's individual account for another $250,000, and a joint account for an additional $250,000 also with any children. There are special rules for trusts and retirement accounts and a little fine print to be aware of, and these are only for depository accounts, and you can get more information on their website. Credit unions are insured in the same way by the NCUA. In addition, the FDIC, like sister agencies, have responsibility to examine banks for safety and soundness. So if you want to know how your bank is doing, there's a search tool on the FDIC website. Toward that end, their mission demands the confidence of the American people. And for other countries, many nations have their own system of deposit insurance, some similar to the FDIC. And we also have relationships with the FDIC because, as you know, many banks are international and have customers worldwide. We certainly experienced that during the crisis. The FDIC is a unique organization inasmuch as they are not funded by the taxpayers and rather by the insurance premiums paid in by the banks, with the exception of the political appointees. In addition, their compensation packages are markedly higher than a typical government employee, and that adds to some of the challenges that they face. Aside from their headquarters, there are regional offices across the country and then less than 100 field offices as well. 
field office managers have near total control over their subordinates' performance ratings and overall responsibility for the subculture of the office. Further, to be a commissioned bank examiner, you go through a rigorous training period over several years under the supervision of senior examiners. That first couple of years, those trainees are aligned under corporate university. During my tenure, the leadership development program was turbocharged with expanded leadership development courses both at the corporate university on site as well as across the country at regional offices and field offices. In those years, employee engagement soared to the point that the FDIC was rated as being the best place to work in the federal government for their agency size for multiple years in a row by the Partnership for Public Service who does this survey. Fast forward today, and they're not even in the top 15. Overall engagement when I left 10 years ago was 82.3. Today, it's 68.5 in a range of 57 to 87. And while I don't know what changes were made in the focus or rigor of the leadership program in the decades since my retirement, the article certainly suggests there are signs that the program may have shifted to less focus. One reason may be that as the mission of bank failures drops following a crisis, the agency goes back to what I'll call peacetime manning, and with that, like any reductions in organizational budgets, Education and training is often first on the chopping block. Organizational culture is one of the biggest challenges for any organizational learning program, and letting up on the gas, even a little, will have a long-term impact. All in all, the headline of sexual harassment of of employees and unprofessional behavior damages the public trust for the mission of providing insurance for bank deposits. Through an employee video for the entire staff at the FDIC, two days after the article came out and one passed the congressional hearings, Chairman Gruenberg said, as chairman, I am ultimately responsible for the actions of our agency, both good and bad, unquote. Gruenberg said in his second video message to the staff, this week, I bear responsibility for setting the tone for our culture, end quote. I think most can agree this is the first step, yet one that is being made after the horse is well outside the barn. There will be more to come in headlines, and it is my view that while training can't solve all problems, positive leadership development will have a long-term impact. What can happen is that the FDIC may use a prescriptive approach in trying to solve this problem with a band-aid And you can't take a leadership pill to fix culture. Thank you for indulging me. And with that, you'll learn more about the FDIC later. And for now, let's get back to NDU. We're well into the 2000s, which is a bit crazy. Last week, I laid out a bit more foundation on changes in how this assignment was different from almost every other one I was in. The majority of the administrative side of the organization were mostly civilians with very few enlisted members and a small number of officers throughout the organization. The exception was among the faculty at the National War College and to a lesser degree at ICAF. 
NDU was working on creating an office of IR for five years, and yet we had it operational within months. And to be accurate, because mostly Mike's talents with programming and developing code for the kinds of unique reporting that was needed. I was really just a shepherd, and my contributions were to identify the kind of data we wanted and a template for recurring and special reporting for the varied levels of leadership. To do this better, the next step was to bring on a university registrar. And while each component had folks who had responsibilities specific to their colleges, we added this university-level position to both provide a macro look at this function. With all of the functions within academic affairs, I was charged with two additional projects. The first was responsibility of the day-to-day operations of the growing Office of Academic Affairs, and the data side of the elements that would be part of a completely new information technology system called PeopleSoft. Ahead of this university-wide major shift, NDU used a homegrown information technology program. It was a good program that simply was outgrown by the growth of the university, as well as the many new requirements that brought NDU to its next level post-accreditation. I mentioned earlier that NDU went through somewhat of a growth period in my first years in the assignment, and that included both the growth of existing programs as well as new programs to meet the challenging geopolitical and defense and intelligence arenas. We were also examining expansion of programs that might be appropriate for additional graduate degrees. From these aspects, it was a busy time and a very engaging period for the university. About a year into my tenure, we got a new university president and went from a vice admiral to a lieutenant general, Air Force General Mike Dunn. Here's an interesting and at the same time challenging issue with the leaders across all military professional education organizations. While some do come into the position with experience at another professional military education institution, many don't. And unlike civilian institutions, they don't have the career experience with faculty and the overarching aspects of higher education. And this becomes a bigger challenge now that NDU was accredited. One of the first trips I made in my role with the training consortium was to go to Vienna. Now, I had a colleague who loved Vienna and told me he would be happy to give me some tips, and my answer was, yes, please. He gave me a lay of the land and shared some of the things that he liked the most about Vienna and Austria overall, although I wish he had told me some other smaller details. I was certainly looking forward to the trip and knew that the airport was a bit away from city center where the meeting was being held. I arrive into Vienna and remember that my colleague told me that the approximate fare of the um, train was in euros and how much it would be. Now, the kiosk where you buy the train ticket is only in German. There is no English translation. There was no English translation. At the time, nearly all the signs in the airport were also in German as well. Oh, well. I make my way to the train station after a little help from friendly airport folk, and the kiosk had three choices. I picked the one that was closest to the fare that I knew was hopefully the right one. The train was comfortable, and when they checked my ticket, apparently I was good. I'm watching others get on, and gentlemen were wearing overcoats and hats, and before sitting, they would hang their outer garments on hooks along the side of the train. And some only went one stop, and they still would do this. 
It reminded me of what I envisioned train travel was like in the early days in the United States. So we're traveling from the airport, and it's a rainy day. We go through the rural part of Austria, and all I could think of was the hills are not alive with the sound of music. I could barely see the hills, and I will also say that I didn't see any nuns out dancing or singing. And I guess maybe they only do that on sunny days. I have a bit to go, and I have my giant map to figure out where I get off because I will need to change trains once I get close to Vienna, knowing that the train that I'm on is more like the airport line. I ask a woman on the train if she speaks English, and she shakes her head no. I ask another. Still, no. Finally, an older woman motions to a younger woman on the train, and she becomes my translator because she knew a little English. Now the older woman understands where I'm going from that translation and where I need to get off, and she offers to make sure I get to my platform because she is also getting off at the same stop, or so I'm told. So we get to the stop, and I follow her. She gets off and takes off like a rocket. She was fast. She was scurrying right and then left and up a ramp and around a turn and there were twists and turns and there was no way I would have found it without her with the signs only in German. I'm also really working hard to keep up with her. In hindsight, it was a bit funny. Finally, we get to the platform and she motions to me to a position on the platform and to stay there for the train. And held up four or five—I can't recall exactly—fingers indicating the stop that I was supposed to get off at. I thanked her with English and a gesture of appreciation. She smiles, and just as fast as she walked to where I needed to go, she rushes off, apparently to another platform. She was so kind, and I will always remember her. I get off at the stop that I'm told, and I'm reading the email with the directions to the army base where I'm supposed to go. And again, there are no signs or indications of what even remotely looked like what I was looking for. Oh, look! There's a payphone. Payphone. Well, I did have the number to my contact, so I go to the phone booth and deposit some euro coins. After dialing what I thought were correct numbers, a voice comes on the line. Rats. It's a recording in German, and my guests are saying something like, "That's not the right way," or "That's not the right number," or whatever. Well, finally, I just decide to email the contact and hope that they're near their computer. And bingo, they respond and actually come find me. After that, it was a very good first experience. I learned I need to do a lot more homework before traveling because that kind woman I encountered likely won't be there the next time. Now, NDU had a rule for official travel. You could go two days early, depending on how far the trip was in economy, to adjust for jet lag, or you could fly first class the day before, so you were likely better rested from the flight to jump right into the mission. Now, that wasn't the case for all trips, and you had to navigate that with the travel office. And here's where I got some more advice. What I figured out was that I could fly coach and then use my miles. To upgrade and then get the best of both worlds. Now, upgrading with miles was a lot easier then than it is today. In short order, the IR office is up and running, and we're fully engaged with the implementation of PeopleSoft. 
The two projects come along at a good time and at the same time because there were plenty of complications. Again, thank goodness for Mike and his expertise. With these experiences, I was able to have enough under my belt to also present a conference about our experience of standing up an IR office and decide what a way for the component IR colleagues to gain from others' experiences since everyone can't go to the conferences. I propose that NDU host an NDU DOD-focused IR conference. The boss agreed, and we had 150 attendees across DOD educational institutions attending along with outside experts for plenary and breakout sessions. It was a pretty good success. When you're in these type of positions, as the nation and the world changes, you can watch history unfold in real time. I was pretty junior while on the Madge Common Air staff, and I saw some of this through a far much farther distance due to my grade and lack of breath. Here, I'm still obviously less capable than so many others who were markedly more senior than I was, and because of my senior level position, I was included. Some of you may recall that in 2002, the conversations of developing the Homeland Security Department were ramping up, and while it didn't stand up until the spring of 2003, there were a lot of conversations with the national security experts across NDU. There was also a lot of concern with creating such a large organization, blending entire and parts of more than 20 different agencies. So many differing cultures, there would be some amount of attempts to protect existing cabinet-level scope, and there was concern with the integration into a single department while ensuring missions would not be hampered during the transition period. I remember one meeting where the discussion surrounded the concern that the creation of the organizational structure had to be developed to ensure communication wasn't caught up in the bureaucracy. For me, these were very interesting conversations, and when I see the department today, I think there is still concern that the organization is just too big to be effectively led by one senior leader, in large part because of the diversity of the mission. Protecting the homeland is an easy phrase to say, doing it as an entirely different matter. When you look at the two departments that are larger than Homeland Security, DOD has multiple missions, and yet the breadth is very different and narrower. The second largest organization is the Department of Veterans Affairs, and that does also have a singular mission. Last week, I mentioned that I was thinking about how to further use the newly found time that I figured I had from this assignment. I knew several of my cohorts at William & Mary were teaching adjunctly, and that seemed like a good plan. My choice was the University of Maryland University College. You know this today as the University of Maryland Global Campus. UMUC was located in College Park next to the flagship university, University of Maryland College Park. And while there were some courses in residence, most of the courses, in fact nearly all of the courses, are taught online and something I had little experience with. Since they didn't have a school of education, I chose to teach in the School of Management and met with a board in person as part of the hiring process. The meeting goes well, and I was going to start teaching in the graduate school and some master's courses the next semester. When Jim, also my boss and department chair, said I'd be hired as an assistant professor. And I noted I was previously an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin. 
you remember that academic rank is like currency and as it's honored across all institutions. So that was secured and I was an adjunct associate professor. The biggest benefit was there's a nice bump in pay as you start and your pay increased as the number of courses you taught was logged onto your belt. I don't remember what the thresholds were, but by the second semester, I was moved from teaching master's students into the PhD program. The biggest benefit of this was that I taught the first course in the program, and it was a six-hour course. And so yet another pay raise by accumulating credits was much faster. The course was Communications and Organizational Design. And while it had a wide scope for a course, at the level it was taught, students have enough basis to see the integration of the course and the broad implication and application that it was created for. That first year was quite hectic, learning their online classroom system, and secondly, to learn how to engage with students and hold classes was all new to me. The courses are held asynchronous, meaning that the class was held throughout the given week and students would log on when they could and engage with both me and the other students. I learned two things right out of the gate. First, teaching online takes way more hours in preparation than in person. And secondly, since everyone has to participate through the online system, students are forced to be more engaged and cannot sit in the back of the class. At the time, UMUC also had a way to hold down grade inflation, a common issue in graduate schools. A fully successful student received a B. In fact, as a faculty member, you had to justify every grade over B that was more than 50% of the class. They also had a system to help prevent cheating, which was one of my concerns, never teaching online, and I'll share how that played out in another episode. So now I'm busy for sure, and maybe sometimes too busy, but still, it was great to be back in the classroom and a nice balance with teaching and my administrative role at NDU. There was some talk about my teaching at NDU very early on. However, that didn't come to fruition. I hope that all of you in the United States have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, and we'll see you next week.